welcome to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast where we don't spend $6,000 on a new transmission. This is Jason from Not Just Bikes, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Adam, from the YouTube channel, Adam Something. That would be me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. So I want to talk today about an article that was in my local news from my hometown. I am from London, Ontario, Canada, here on referred to as Fake London. And this is interesting because as I've started my YouTube channel, I've gotten on the radar of people in fake London and the Canadian broadcast company has contacted me a few times for quotes over the last couple of years. And they had an interesting story. So I'm just going to really quickly explain that before I bring it back over to Adam to discuss. But the idea here is that they wanted me to weigh in on a story that happened in fake London. There was a woman whose car broke and it needed $6,000 to repair the transmission. Now, she thought, you know, I don't use my car that much, so can I just go car-free? And she tweeted about this. Well, the responses she got were very interesting. There were some people, especially people who were particularly privileged backgrounds, who were wealthy, who said, yeah, you could probably go car-free in fake London. And then there were people who live there and are forced to go car-free, and they were like, absolutely not, you cannot go car-free. And after researching her options, she was basically like, no, I can't go car free where I live in fake London. I need to spend $6,000 for a new transmission. And that's what she's done. And this is insane by a European context, right? And that's why I wanted Adam here. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure, it would be weird to suggest such a thing in Europe. Of course, if you live in out in the boonies, then of course, sure. If you live in like a village of like 10 And the nearest town is like 20 kilometers away. That happens sometimes. But for 99% of people, this is, of course, not the case. Well, we're talking here about London, Ontario, Canada, with a population of 400,000 people. So Mm. can you imagine living in a city of 400,000 people in Europe and having absolutely no option to go car-free? Yeah, that's impossible to imagine, basically. So even in the worst, most car-centric recesses of the conservative Hungarian countryside, for example, where I visited... (laughs) Even there, the boomers that run the city who have only seen the city from inside their cars for the last 50 years, you know, even they have managed to build a surprisingly useful bike infrastructure inside the city. I'm talking about the Debrecen, which is in the southeast of Hungary. It's actually the second largest city, which is the same size as fake London, actually. Right. And even there, which is considered this like pro-Orban conservative hellscape, which it is, to be fair, but still there is a actually useful separated bike infrastructure. You can get to places and you can go absolutely car free. So for me yeah. to hear in fake London, it's impossible in a city of 400,000 to go car free. I mean, it sounds pretty insane to me. Yeah. And you are Hungarian, that's correct? By birth, yes. Yeah, uh, by fortunately, birth. I no longer live there. <laughs> yeah. So what was interesting here about this fake London story, and this is why they wanted me to comment, is that some people did say they could go car free and they tended to be people who are more privileged. And they said, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that's the case? The only people who say that you could go car free in the city are the more privileged. And what I told them, and I'll add the link to this article in the description, because I think this is really interesting in so many ways. This really highlights so many things that are wrong with the way that we've planned cities in North America for so long in this one scenario. Because basically, it's been illegal to build walkable neighborhoods in Canada for about 70 years because of zoning, particularly single family zoning and exclusionary zoning so that things can't be nearby. You know, they'll have the commercial district over here and the residential district over there. It's like you're playing Sim City, <laughs> And that means that things are inherently far away that you need to drive to do most things. But it didn't used to be that way. So if you look at neighborhoods that were built before World War II, 
even in fake London, they will have that mixed-use zoning. They will have amenities nearby. They may still have a little bit of public transport, which is only buses these days in fake London, but they used to have electric trains going to all the cities near it. But they don't have that anymore. They tore all that out and built roads and strodes instead. So the thing is, there's a very small amount of good urbanism left in Canada, and fake London is no exception. And now that people are realizing that maybe it was a mistake to make this illegal for the last 70 years, those few small places of good urbanism are in demand, which means the only people who can afford to live there are those with the means to pay for those, you know, those areas that are in limited supply. And that's why you've got this situation where the most privileged people in society are the only ones who might have a chance of living in the few remaining places where you could actually go car free, <laughs> which just seems insane, right? All like right. this is just such a bizarre situation. And you just don't see this in Europe, right? So maybe you could tell us, Adam, a little bit about the places you've lived, because I know you've lived in some larger cities, some smaller towns, you've lived all over. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on to talk about this, because Again, it's like when I talk to North Americans, they'll say, oh, you know, you need to live in a big city to do this or that. And that's really not the case, right? At least in your experience in Europe. All right. So I'd like to approach this issue from two sides. So first off, city sizes and then the wealth guests in society and, and their right. relationships to transport. So first off, the city size, I mean, cities don't have to be large to have decent public transit. So recently I visited some relatives in the north of the Czech Republic. It's a village of like 500 people, yep. which is like 10 kilometers away from a town of like 30,000. And from that village of 500, there is an hourly train service to the town, mm. linking up all the neighboring small villages. And so this is peak times. And also during peak times, like work times, commute times, etc., there is every hour, there is one train and two buses, two of these like regional buses that take you to the town center. And there's also been recently a fully separated bike path inaugurated between the village and the town. So now you can also like bike to the town if you really want to. So you have options, of course. Lots of people drive because it's a prestige thing. I will tie it back to the societal class approach. But basically in Europe, of course, we have caught a whiff of car-centric planning. It has happened. Mm -hmm. We are not without car-centric planning. But like car-centric planning in Europe means awkwardly slapping an additional street of new development on an existing old city structure where all the houses have like two parking lots maybe or double garages. And thankfully, this is like the most common in some places, even it is being changed. In Eastern Europe, we have not gotten to the point where we are really wanting to mess with parking minimums because in Europe, there is also parking minimums, but they are, of course, they are like, they're way more lax than in the US. Right. Still, I would prefer parking maximums. Currently, there is a discussion in Prague, though, about whether Prague parking minimums should exist the way they are. Of course, they shouldn't, but there's a discussion, at least in some places. So if I can just interrupt for just one second there. So you're talking about that first example you were giving was a very, very small village or a relatively small village. And you said that the town that it was nearby was what population? 30,000? 30,000, 30, yeah. It's a small town. Yeah. So I'm looking at a list of cities in Canada sorted by population. And it's just crazy to me to think about that level of public transit to a village near a town that small. Because the town you're talking about of 30,000 people would be considered a small to medium-sized city in Canada, based on the way they use the terms town and city. But we're talking about, like, to any Canadians listening, we're talking about, like, Timmins or Innisfil or Moose Jaw having, like, public transit, functional public transit and bike lanes out to the tiny villages around it. And that just blows my mind. I can't believe that... <laughs> I mean, never mind, we're talking about fake London here, a city of 400,000 people. 
with really such poor public transit that people feel like it's left only for the poor and the desperate. Anyway, sorry to interrupt there, but that just really blows my mind that that's the level of difference we're talking about here. Oh, sure. I mean, and this is the Czech Republic. So the Czech Republic is quite backwards compared to some areas in Germany or right. well, the Netherlands being the gold standard. Right. But still, Canada is way farther even from this level of transit. Now, the other thing I want to mention, though, is so on one hand, we have this sort of car-centric, quote-unquote, planning, which still doesn't come even close to the American standard, thankfully. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, though, in Europe, the rich-poor divide and the rich-poor relationships to cars is sometimes flipped around. So, of course, we have the same thing as in America that, like, you know, we have this urban upper middle, middle class group who is living car free. You know, they are the ones who drive around the cargo bikes. And right. like in Berlin, there's like a big emergent upper middle class there, which is like very green, very environmentally conscious. We can touch on Berlin later because there's some interesting things happening there, some shenanigans. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about Berlin. Yeah. Crazy shit going on there right now. Hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. So sometimes it's, of course, this upper middle class, you know, they want to live in an environmentally conscious way. They realize that like, oh, actually, the center being choked by cars is perhaps not the best idea. Right. But then on the other hand, there are also areas where this upper middle class, like in outer Paris, like in the Paris suburbs, this upper middle class is definitely has this like a Marie brain sort of car brain. I want the house with the two cars and et cetera. And from that perspective, really public transportation and walkable air areas equal poor housing, basically, or like poor areas, because in Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, though, a lot of the walkable areas, so lots of cities were destroyed in Europe, yeah. and, but then later on, a whole bunch of them was built back. And in Eastern Europe in particular, the buildings that were built back when the cities sprawled out from their historic course to their current massive, uh, well, relatively massive sizes, this was done so under Soviet planning doctrines. And that was the so-called, that was Sotsharod, that was the Mikrorayon, that was the Kamiblok areas mm -hmm. designed with so-called, it was sort of full planning, it was called, or complete planning rather, where you have a residential area and there's a store, there's two kindergartens, there's three schools, there is a tram going through the middle. So everything was designed in a way that that area can function on its own, basically. So it can be its own. So that was basically 15-minute cities before 15-minute cities. Right. And in Prague in particular, in those Kamiblok areas, like every segment of the population in terms of wealth does live in those, except for the richest. Those don't. Right. Are these desirable places to live these days? Very much so, especially if the comic blocks are renovated and right. insulated and, you know, new windows. I know from my experience in Poland, because my wife's family is from there, some of those places can be very, very small apartments. But then I think that sometimes that multiple apartments have been added together into one apartment. And I'm not sure if it's similar from what you've seen. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, but like in small apartments, that's usually for like single people, like young right. couples. So, I mean, even those have their own market. The most apartments, as far as I know, are the standard, you know, 55 square meters, 60 square meters, 63. These houses were made in so-called house factories mm -hmm. where they just like mass produce the same apartments or whatever. And it kind of worked. It housed a bunch of people after the war, you know, there was no housing. Like where do you put people? Well, there. And it was a big leap forward, a civilization leap for many people who moved in from houses even without plumbing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, but and let's not get too distracted. The point is, those areas were built actually by design to be car free. Now, of course, those areas are kind of full of cars, but not as full as you would expect, because there's just no space. Right. But the richest people in Eastern European cities, usually those are the ones who do not live in these areas. They live out in these like new trendy suburbs, or they form this like little upper middle class, I don't want to say enclave, but like they settle into the very unaffordable city centers where they then ideally live car-free. So there's like this very car-centric and very car-free 
extremes of the upper middle class and the higher classes in Europe. Right. As opposed to Canada, where only fake London, where the rich who get to experience the joys of living like a normal human and the rest of us, well, you know. It's been a very strange dynamic because Canada is quite different than the US in this regard. And this is one of these things where I don't talk about this too much on the channel. It really starts to branch out and get into the weeds. But America had a lot more of the racial segregation than Canada did. Canada simply didn't have that idea that all the whites moved out to the suburbs and all the people who weren't white were stuck in the crumbling cities. That was much less of a thing in Canada. And in fact, you see in many of the suburbs, especially the suburbs of cities like Vancouver and Toronto, where a lot of the suburbia is minorities that live there. When recent immigrants to Canada came in, they would go move to the suburbs. And there wasn't this racial segregation of keeping those people out of the suburbs. So I find that there isn't that racial element. And a lot of that racial element is also the source of some of the big socioeconomic differences, because some of those people would come in, we're talking literally people who have emigrated to Canada from a developing nation. And so they don't come with an awful lot of money. So it's not like they were coming into slums, they were also coming into suburbs. And so I find that in Canada is generally a lot more mixed in terms racially as well as economically. And there are some apartment towers in fake London that are built into the more suburban areas. So you'll have single family homes and you'll have some apartments, nothing in between. There's hardly anything in between. The missing middle is definitely still missing. But I don't find it quite so extreme. But still, even when I was a kid in the 80s, if you had money, you were living in your big single family home in whatever was the latest suburb. So you were living farther out. It's a more recent thing that people are starting to recognize the benefits of being able to walk to things and being able to not be chained to your car all the time. And so I think it's a relatively recent thing that some of those wealthier people are starting to move into these older, traditional walkable neighborhoods. Anybody listening from fake London would know like Wortley Village, for example, which is actually a fairly nice walkable mixed use area in the middle of London, Ontario, which, you know, now the housing prices are extremely high. And this is a hundred year old neighborhood because it was built before exclusionary zoning. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's strange how the tables have turned, because I would imagine those mixed-use areas used to be before gentrification, before the inevitable moving of the higher classes. I would imagine those were just like average, regular, small-town areas with... Yeah, I wouldn't say that they were slums like they were in the United States, but they certainly weren't the desirable areas. They were just sort of just hanging on. But in general, as Strong Towns has taught us, mixed-use walkable areas tend to be a lot more resilient. So... Even when the wealthy people move out, those places can still be resilient. They have spaces okay. for small businesses. They are the kind of places that will persevere through all sorts of ups and downs. I think the trick now, and this is going to be the really, really, really scary transition that will happen in the United States and Canada, especially in the United States, the idea of suburban poverty. Because in the past, if you were poor and living in a walkable neighborhood, you were poor and you were living in an old building, but you could at least walk to things. You could at least do some things by walking. Maybe you could get an old bicycle. You could get by. If now the cities become desirable and everybody moves in and the poor get moved out to the older suburbs, so not the new suburbs, the shiny and new, but we're talking, let's say, the 1950s ones where hmm. those houses are in pretty rough shape, right? Like they have to be renovated, but they were built to be car centric. They were built without sidewalks. They were built with the intention that everybody there would drive. And if those become the only thing that someone can afford, and you're forced to live in those crumbling 1950s, 1960s houses, single family homes in old suburbia, you're screwed. 
because not only are you living in a house that needs a lot of work like you would be if you were living in an older neighborhood in the past in the city, but now also you're living somewhere car dependent, which oh, yeah. makes that poverty even worse. Oh, yeah. Some serious reason would need to be done. Hopefully the new iteration of Bernie Sanders will come along and, you know, tell us like, you know, I don't find it fair that the top 10% live in these walkable cities and the poor and the 90% are out in the car-centric suburbs. <laughs> I don't find this fair. We need public transportation, public transportation now, state subsidized. Vote for me. <laughs> what would really like help with those suburbs is to change the zoning, to do things yeah. like allowing people to, for instance, start a business in their garage, right? Oh, yeah. To be yeah. able to like... To have a restaurant there. Oh, yeah. Or just linking streets, maybe like if the leadership is terminally sort of neoliberal, then we could tell them, hey, how about some upzoning, some hyper real estate investment, capitalism 2.0, etc. So once you lay out the city proper, like once you lay out the zoning plan, and then let's say you let developers lose on the problem, that's a nice sounding phrase. That sounds pretty good for the neoliberals. Oh, yeah, sure. So like just let's let the real estate market decide and let's let the markets take care of our city. And, you know, and then they just let developers work with a proper zoning plan that I think actually could make things better. Yeah. So this is that stark difference between Canada and the situation in Europe. But as we've seen, there have been some moves in Europe to go to a more car centric model, which is kind of crazy to me, to be honest, because like you can look at what's happened in the United States and it's pretty obvious how bad the situation has become. But there's still people in Europe that are pushing for this. I don't know what their motivations are, but tell me some examples that you've seen of sort of this new car-centric push that's been happening lately. So the main problem in Europe currently is that cars are now culture war. Yeah, I've seen it too. And the first example I'm going to bring up is Berlin. In Germany, they'd say they are the old sort of traditional conservative party, right-wing, not far-right, but traditional right, Christian right. They have embraced this culture war rhetoric in hopes of attracting the more radical voters, like from the IFD, which is the far right, the German far right, which is now the second strongest party in Germany. So, hooray. Yeah, so anyway, so the CDU is actually now ratcheting up this reactionary rhetoric, but in hopes of drawing in more support from the right. But of course, this is just this is a brief aside to set the stage. I'm going to explain this. But instead of gaining more voters, they're actually losing voters because what they're doing is they are radicalizing the discourse in Germany towards the right. And then people who get radicalized, they, of course, go and vote for the actual far right and not for the conservatives because, hey, you know, just got to vote for a real deal. And so in this environment where the right wing is getting also more far right, just like in the US. I don't know about the situation in Canada, but I would imagine perhaps there are some similar undercurrents there. Now, cars and walkability and bikes have been caught up in the crossfire. So now for a far right person, if you use a cargo bike, if you bike around the city, if you buy like, you know, vegetarian stuff or vegan stuff or like oat milk or something like that, you're part of the brainwashed, global homo, George Hurt, degenerate, etc., etc. Mind virus, the woke virus got to you. Also, transportation is now part of this idiotic conspiracy train. So the city recently came to power in Berlin. So now they will give the mayor for the city. And their transit commissioner is also from the CDU, which is once again the German Conservative Party. Right. So what happened there? They went fall out on the culture war, you know, don't take our parking spaces. The transportation shift of Berlin from car to bike and public transportation is essentially degenerate. I mean, that was, I mean, they didn't say that, but that was the idea. Right. It's for like inner city cucks who like, you know, like to chug their soy, but real people, the real working people, they'll drive their cars because they, you know, like it's the usual shit. I'm sorry, you can't put on a fake American accent when we're talking about Berlin. You just, <laughs> I'm not going to let you oh, do okay, that. Okay, <laughs> okay that's, that's fine. That's fine. 
<laughs> right. But I've seen a very similar thing happening. My comments section of my videos has always had these nut jobs in it, but they do seem to be growing. It's tough to tell, though, because my channel's growing too. But this whole idea that anybody that talks about good urbanism is a WAF shill has been around for many years, actually. I know that, well, I mean, we've already recorded an earlier podcast, the first podcast oh, yeah. that we did on the Urbanist Agenda about the 15-minute cities conspiracy. And the people think, oh, this is a new thing. But actually, this has been slowly growing for quite a long time. And from my perspective, what I've seen, there's a massive overlap here between the rejection of good urbanism and climate change denialism. And oh, yeah. I really do get the feeling that a lot of this is coming from that angle. I don't know, again, as we've talked about before, if these people are literally being funded by fossil fuel industries, it wouldn't surprise me. But regardless of whether they are or not, the climate change denialism is really underpinning a lot of this stuff. And that's oh, yeah. where they're coming from with this. The idea that we're saying that we're cycling, we're taking public transit, these things are good for the climate. They just are factually better than driving, even electric cars. And so because of that, because they are better for the climate, that's why they're getting wrapped up in all of this. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely an overlap. And in Germany, this overlap is the car industry, obviously. But this also ties into this German national yeah. mythos of like, it was the car industry that made Germany great, etc. Now, of course, the CDU and, and their sister party, CSU, which is the even crazier Bavarian variant, they are very much in bed with the with Volkswagen and these major German car concerns. Also, further on the right wing, the FDP, the German weird libertarian party, is nowadays called the Porsche Party or the Porsche Partei, because apparently they literally took instructions from Porsche in terms of like their politics and what to vote for, etc. So yeah, there's yeah. that. I mean, I'm seeing that in Germany a lot. The anti-urbanist politicians are really, really close to the car industry. And I think that car oh, industry sure. in Germany is driving a lot of that. And here in the Netherlands, we don't have a car industry. But I do find that a lot of the politicians who are pushing back against good urbanism and pushing for more car infrastructure are awfully friendly with Shell, which is a Dutch company. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, go figure. Right. Wow, I'm shocked. You know, <laughs> I cannot believe it. Anyway, but jokes aside, so in Germany, same situation. So car industry, oil industry is also in this. And as soon as a good indication is recently the shenanigans that went down in Berlin, where the CDU came to power, now they gave the transit commissioner for the city who's, I mean, of course, I mean, that woman is, if you look at her, I mean, she's just your average like lizard. The way I phrased it in a community post is that she's a pantsuit stuffed full of auto industry lobbying money, which is, I mean, it's just these like, you know, milk toast politicians. So the male variant in Germany is the piece of ham wrapped in a suit. And the female variety is just this like, you know, wads of cash in a pantsuit with like Volkswagen written on each wad. This is what we're dealing with in Berlin currently. And the first measure of this person who came to power, the transit commissioner was to, first off, she canceled a bike lane, which cost a couple of years ago, 280,000 euros to set up because it canceled some parking spaces. Yeah. And she also said that like, if a bike lane to be built is going to eliminate even one parking space, then that bike lane is not happening. Yeah. And then she went on to hold all bike lane projects in Berlin to review them if they make sense, which obviously would mean a major calling of bike projects and basically even reverting to car centrism. Now, in response to this, I've read that this was actually quite surprised the party, the CDU and the transit commissioner, that people immediately started protesting. And now they will plan weekly protests in the center of Berlin right. because there's one street in Berlin I think Schönhauser Alley, I forget currently, but anyway, if you Google it, you'll find it. So there was like this extremely important bike through fair. 
I think like 10,000 cyclists pass through there every day. But now they have to share the sidewalk with pedestrians, which leads to a ton of conflicts, yeah. ton of issues. Meanwhile, cars get just free reign. And there was like a long promised cycle path there. It's going to be there. It's going to happen. And now the commissioner axed it and then did not communicate. Zero communication, complete incompetence in this regard. And so people got really pissed. And hopefully this movement will balloon into a general sort of opposition to a return to the 1960s in terms of planning. One can hope, yeah. because in Berlin, actually, people are much more... So in contrast to Prague, the infrastructure in Berlin that was built is actually useful, and it got popular, and it's not dangerous, and people actually do use it, a lot of people. And so it is very much doubtful that there is viable political capital behind core centrism in Berlin. Yeah. So we'll find out shortly, but it seems like people just will not take this. The only reason why the CDU managed to win, they got into the government through a technicality. The social democrats in Berlin are horribly incompetent. And the former SPD mayor, mayoress, I should say, wanted to cling on to her seat, wanted to cling on to her government position. So she made a political deal to ally with the CDU. And so now we have a CDU SPD, right. so like a conservative and social democrat government in Berlin, which is now doing, of course, all the damage. So this kind of rhetoric that you're talking about in Berlin is very familiar because I've seen it when I was living in Toronto, because we went through the election of Rob Ford, the crack smoking mayor, who was an absolute disaster. And Oh, Mr. Ford? Or... Yeah. And then his brother, Doug Ford, who then has gone on to become the premier of Ontario for the Conservative Party. And these guys were sort of the original bike lanes as culture war in Toronto. And Rob very much got elected on a platform of tearing up bike lanes and taking out the streetcars and putting more space back for cars. And he did get elected on that. And then his brother ran on the same platform, but just barely lost out to a more, I guess, traditional fiscal conservative. But I think what's interesting, actually, in Toronto, they just had an election because the conservative mayor had a sex scandal and actually stepped down, which is shocking. Wow. If listeners are interested, the last podcast, I guess a few ago with RM Transit about Toronto needs a new mayor, we talked about this. But long story short, they actually elected a socialist politician, Olivia Chow, to Toronto, which is fantastic news. But what I thought was most interesting, there were two candidates running on this very culture war, get rid of the bike lanes platform. When you went to their website and it was along the top, there were like the five things that you could click on. One of them in both cases was about removing bike lanes. Like it was that much of a core pillar of their platform. And the two of them combined only ended up getting about 16% of the vote. So I really hope that this is starting to show this change that people are not willing to put up with this. Like this is nonsense. They know this is nonsense. People are starting to wake up to the fact that there are benefits to this walkable city. Bringing it back to this beginning of this conversation, we don't want to go to this situation where your car breaks down, you owe six grand and you have no choice but to pay it. Oh yeah. Because you know, when we're talking here, especially drives me nuts when these conservatives keep banging on about freedom. Is that freedom? Is that freedom to have your car break and you're forced to pay $6,000 and you have no choice? So it doesn't sound like freedom to me. That sounds like chains. I mean, it's a car industry paywall, basically, between you and living your life, which is unfortunate. I'm actually very glad that the anti-bike and anti-pedestrian uh, pro-car platform is getting less and less popular. Thankfully, this is mostly due to the fact that more and more people are trying it, more and more people are exposed to this, and they see that, oh, wait, that's actually pretty good. So, you know, why would I not want to have this? And then some people scream about, like, eliminating all this and taking us back to the past. Well, this, hopefully and thankfully in some places, 
is just a no-go, it seems. And that's great. I mean, once the Overton window shifts in transit politics, that's all we need, right? Now, a peculiar situation, though, I want to bring up a sort of a strange example is Prague in the Czech Republic. Yeah, I wanted you to talk about Prague. This is interesting, I think. And you have direct experience with this, right? Oh, yeah. I used to live in Prague, yeah. So the thing about Prague is it's a very, very nice looking city. Yeah, it's beautiful in the city center. I've been there a couple of times. Yeah, it's really nice. It's beautiful in the center, yeah. But if you live in Prague, you will not go to the center. Exactly. It's all Airbnbs now, from my understanding. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And that's one of the problems. The other problem is that the center is basically like a big parking lot, aside from the very touristy areas. So Prague has per capita twice as many cars as Vienna, a city of comparable size and comparable structure. The whole city is just overrun by cars, right? And the problem is, that Prague has not gotten to the breaking point yet. Now it's a sort of car traffic seems to be culminating. So there is just not enough space for cars, period. Like the city is just filling up. And hopefully this will shift people more towards... Actually, I think between 60 and 65% of people in Prague agree that cars should be restricted in the center. So that's good. We've made it at least that right. far. That's great. If you only went on based on what the mayor thinks, you would think that Prague residents want like 1960 back. <laughs> But the mayor of Prague is I mean, it's actually it's a weird outlier because the current Prague leadership does not represent at all what the people want, really. They are very car centric. And the problem is in Prague. This is what I want to get, basically. The problem in Prague, as opposed to places like Berlin or Toronto, even Berlin and Toronto have actually some nice bike lane projects, the way I've heard. Berlin, definitely. Toronto, I've read some articles. So those projects are actually very nice. They're very useful. They're safe. They're nice to use. Now, in Prague, because of this more underlying sort of anti-bike and pro-car attitude. The infrastructure that could be built out, I mean, it's there, it's usable, but it's shit because it's dangerous, it's not separated, and drivers just ignore it and they'll just pull into you uh, to park on the bike lane and just ignore you. And then if they run you over, they run you mm. over, that's it. You know, then it's your fault as a cyclist for not looking around, you know. And so the bike infrastructure in Prague is complete shit. It's like Brussels, like, you know, 20 years right. ago. And people just aren't exposed to good examples of this. So the mayor, who is the current transit commissioner, who is on paper pro-bike and pro-transit, etc. I think he's a weak politician. He's more interested in like virtue signaling and posturing and political maneuvering than actually doing something. What he should do is have a 500 meter long street section or something, which people actually frequent. So not out in the boonies, but somewhere in the center, and then have it done to the T on the level of quality as something you would see in Amsterdam or something. But basically a street which will represent the peak bike-friendly and peak car-free infrastructure. And the people could see that, oh, well, this is so cool. So why don't we have more? And so this is what would generate political capital behind pro-cycling and pro-pedestrian development. But this doesn't happen in Prague because the infrastructure is uh, its complete shit. It's dangerous. And you know, actually, one of my friends wanted a bike from me because I have like multiple bikes. So I was like, hey, I can bring you a bike. There's one I don't need. And I was like, hey, are we going to like bike around in Prague? And they were like, what? No. Do I look suicidal to you? No. <laughs> fuck no. So people are exposed to this like bad bike infrastructure, which was built out even in places where there is like a 70 or 90 kilometers per hour. I think it's 70. Like it's arterial road, four lanes, 70 on it. But there are two bike lanes on the side, not separated. Right. So cars and trucks just zoom past next to you. No one bikes that is dangerous. And then... Conservatives and demagogues get to point at those and see, ha, look. Nobody's using them, right? Yeah, they call them cyclo-fascists, actually. <laughs> the pro-cycling advocates, green terrorists, you know, stuff like that. And they say, ha, these degenerate cyclo-fascists, they built this goddamn bike lane here. That's why we have traffic jams, but and no one's even using them. So let's erase some bike lanes. Let's erase these bike lanes because they're pointless, you know. No one 
seriously will bike in Prague. Do you think that people like the average person in Prague is waking up to this a little bit? Because I was very encouraged by what I saw in Toronto with the results of the election, that the normies are starting to get it, that this whole rhetoric of like, oh, the bike lanes are causing their traffic. I think people are kind of saying, you know, we've had traffic for decades. Yeah. Even before there were bike lanes. Like, really? Yeah. Are people starting to wisen up to this? Yeah. I mean, in Prague, this is actually starting. Funny thing is, Prague is one of the least progressive cities in terms of biking in the Czech Republic. So Mm -hmm. in the Czech Republic, it's kind of flipped around that like Prague, usually what you find is that in big cities, you know, they are the most tolerant, they are the most progressive, they're the most bike-friendly. Prague is the most racist place against Roma and Jews in the whole Czech Republic. The countryside, smaller cities, they are much more progressive in this regard. And while other cities are narrowing streets, they are putting up bike pads, they are making... The city is more livable. Prague is just like, yeah, well, we should have like a par- more parking garages or something. Of course, Prague is, I mean, oh my God, I, I don't want to get into the complexities of the subject. I'll just say this. <laughs> Prague is a borderline non-functional city. Prague is not even like one city. It's just a collection of cities melded together, each city being in one district. The city of Prague has more city halls than New York City. There's 59 city mm-hmm. halls, 59 different leaderships, extremely fragmented. It's so devolved and so decentralized that it's bordering on non-functional. So it's very, very hard to put anything through. But on the other hand, if one city district gets a good leadership, then you can immediately see like, oh, actually there's good ideas. You know, they are turning, you know, streets in front of schools car free. They are planting more trees instead of parking spaces. And, but anyway, what I wanted to say is (laughs) one funny thing I saw that like the conservative party, which gave the Prague mayor and which usually hosts like the most vehemently pro-car people, that only happens in Prague. The conservatives in Prague are crazy, but it's of the people from the same party in the Czech countryside, I've seen one of the mayors, I think, in the city of Yihlava. That dude wrote post himself to the city hall's website where he was like debate broing the car, like the driver's like, hey, let me tell you, you know, look, I know that you find it stupid that we're narrowing the fucking road, but we have to do it because it's safer, okay? And we have to have bike lanes and shut the fuck up and, you know, this is what we're <laughs> going to do. So on the one hand, you have these like people living in the 60s and the other hand, from the same conservative party. On the other hand, like supposedly conservatives debate broing, you know, drivers about like the need for bike-friendly infrastructure. So Czech Republic, weird place. So Prague, though, Prague does have decent public transit, though, right? Prague has a world-class public transit. 99% of people in Prague could go car-free 100%. I never even needed a car when I lived in Prague. I worked in the center. I lived out on the on the fringes in the Block mm-hmm. area. Unless you do something very specific, you do not need a car in Prague. And yet, lots of people use their cars and lots of people go by car which is purely a luxury. There are these giant P plus R parking lots at the edges of town, at metro stations. You could put down your car, you could go into the center, but why would you put down your car if you can just go into the center? In Prague, parking enforcement is so weak that it's basically free parking. So no one will care. You can just park on the sidewalk even, and no one will care. No one will tow your car. It's parking anarchy. So, you know, this has actually led to a lot of, I should say, spoiled people who think the city belongs to them just because they drive. And yeah, I mean, that's definitely a problem. But funny enough, though, a different example I can also bring up is Budapest, where they did a very interesting experiment recently in terms of parking. Not to get too derailed from the subject, but an opposition mayor was elected and lots of opposition district mayors in Budapest. And they immediately started doing actually meaningful pro-cycling measures. I was in Budapest a few years ago, actually, and I noticed that Mm -hmm. they had done a lot of really good projects. There was a bunch of really good traffic calming. There were some nice bike lanes going in. I was seriously impressed, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, Budapest has a long way to go, but I mean, it's actually, I think it's about to surpass Prague even. Due to the nature of the Budapest political system can move faster than the Prague system because it's less fragmented. 
actually one of the districts. So in Budapest, so far we had free parking. So it was just a free-for-all, whatever. So in some places, sure, there was paid parking, but otherwise, for residents, residents had to pay nothing. And sometimes the local leaderships would distribute out, you know, parking permits as if they were gifts, you know, of course, for people to vote for them. So like one household could get like two or three permits free tied to licenses. And so one district said, okay, we're going to have people pay for parking licenses. I think the price was something like $70 per year. And this $70 per year parking fee caused 1,400 cars to just disappear from the district, like without a trace, because even that wow. small amount just caused people to just reconsider having their car there. Well, it's interesting because Hungary actually has one of the lowest levels of car ownership rates in the entire European Union, and they also tend to have the oldest of the cars. So they have the absolute lowest new car rate. I mean, that's probably due to a history of not being able to afford cars, right? Yeah. And holding on to old cars for a very long time. But I think that's an interesting opportunity for Hungary because that's where people can really just jump from like having this old beat up 20 year old car to just getting rid of it completely. And I think there's an opportunity oh, yeah. there. Hopefully they'll use it. I mean, so far this sort of a living without a car type of situation is usually in the countryside around Budapest, in the suburbs of Budapest and inside yeah. the city, the number of cars has increased pretty sharply. That's the place where like everyone wants to commute from the suburbs by car. So it's actually good that they're doing calming measures. Recently, the chain bridge, it was decided that the chain bridge will have no car traffic, no private car traffic. It'll all be buses and bikes, which of course, Fidesz and Viktor Orban, etc., like you know, far right party, what can you do? They, of course, turn it into a culture war issue. They start talking about the, the war on cars right. and, you know, the motorist persecution and stuff like that. But like in Budapest, even there, like most people agree with these calming measures. So there is definitely a shift even in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, I think, will be the last one to really shift over to this way of thinking. But the fact that even they do, I think that gives us cause for hope. Yeah, but I think, again, I think the one benefit Eastern Europe has is, in general, much lower levels of car ownership than some of the wealthier countries in Europe. So maybe oh, yeah. it is possible if public transit is brought up to spec, you know, it's properly invested in. And if there are cycle lanes that are actually safe, people who currently have no car may look at this and say, you know, I don't need to buy one of these shiny, expensive new cars if this is good enough for me. And this is really the trick, right? I mean, what we're trying to avoid here, we don't want these people being stuck in the situation where they have to pay $6,000 for their new transmission. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, going car free in Eastern Europe, you don't need to bring these systems up to par because they're already on par. Yeah. So in Eastern Europe, in Budapest, Prague, et cetera, even Bucharest, systems are good. You can absolutely rely on them. They are better than anything you find in America, even New York yes. City. The only thing I find is that the rolling stock does tend to be quite old at times. But that's just a case of modernization. And I think the EU can fund those sort of improvements, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's harder and harder to find sort of old. Genuinely old, yeah. Old rolling stock in Europe, yeah. But like from the perspective of the passenger, the only thing that counts really is does the thing have low floor or not? Maybe AC. Yeah. So if AC, low floor, these are there, like there are buses in Budapest that are like 25 years old, which are nonetheless fitted with like AC and low floor, et cetera. So I don't think at this point it's a question of age, it's a question of like technical equipment. And even on that front, I think generally speaking, of course, places vary, results vary, but like generally speaking, I would say even Eastern Europe is doing pretty well. So going car free is absolutely possible, even in Eastern Europe, despite the fact that some people don't want to, because in some heads, particularly like the older generation or younger people who think like boomers, they still think that like the car is a prestige because of course, back then you couldn't get a yeah. car. You had to wait for like years. 
It's actually pretty funny that <laughs> it's actually it harkens back to the fake London article that back then when you got a car in the glorious Soviet times, you waited years for your car to be distributed to you after paying the down payment, etc. Right. And you got the car on paper, everything is there. In reality, you had to shell out more money additionally at a friendly mechanic whom you knew and trusted so that they can fix and replace all the things that were stolen out of the car in the factory. <laughs> so that that's how things worked back then. Yeah, I mean, cars are still a luxury object. And I see that all the time in the Netherlands. We know families who are car-free and use cars here like us. We also know lots and lots of people who own cars. But it's funny that even the people we know who own cars don't use them very much. They tend to sit there yeah. in front of their house for very long periods of time. And then they'll use them to go on a drive on vacation to France or something like that. And I'll say to them, well, why don't you just rent a car when you need to drive to France? And they'll be like, nah, I like having our own car. So it really is one of these luxury items. And I think, you know, mm. it's not like we all got rid of wristwatches when we got clocks on our phones, right? Like people still wear yeah. watches. In fact, people wear $20,000 watches sometimes if they want to show off. And I think it's the same thing with the car, that one of these things where you're like, if you have a parking spot and you can buy it and you have the money, why the hell not? Why wouldn't you, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so like, I think we should like dispel the notion that like we're like absolutely anti-car or that radical. Uh, no, I mean, look, if you want to own a car and you have a place to put it and you don't impede other people, if you don't take up other people's public space, then yeah, feel free to have a car. Yeah. That's fine. In the same way, if you want to live in a single family home, as long as you don't commute by car every day, as long as you can walk to places, cycle to places, as long as you, you know, put some solar panels on your house, so it's like an active house, so it's not like a huge drain in energy and it's, you're not like a net CO2 source, as long as traffic wise and energy wise, you're okay. That's okay. So we're not against the concept of car ownership or even single family homes. You know, I know some people are worried about this. Yeah. But the point is that, I mean, you just have to live your life in a way that's not detrimental to others and that it's not like wasteful because waste means, in this case, you know, CO2 emissions, etc. And, you know, we share the same atmosphere and we share the same climate. So it would be nice if you didn't. But otherwise, if you don't do this, hey, have fun with your car, have fun with your single family home. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the trick, right? That's what this is all about. I've said this in so many different videos. It's not cars that are the problem, it's car dependency. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we give people options. And I think that's probably as good a place as any to end this conversation on, because I know we could talk about this forever. I well, know yeah. we could. Don't get me started. But ultimately, <laughs> the trick is car dependency, which is what we have, tying it back again to this original article. That's what we have have in fake London, when you're in this situation where you have a car that you don't use that often, but you have to own it because you just literally can't feed yourself, can't get a job, oh, yeah, yeah. that's not freedom. And we need to strike this balance. And you know, we need to make sure that these people don't regress Europe in this way. We need to strike this balance that cars can be available for the conveniences that they offer without causing significant damage to the rest of the city and robbing people of their choices and ways to get around. Because the last thing we want to do is end up with Europeans being stuck in a situation where they have to pay 6,000 euros to repair their transmission in order to feed themselves, right? So oh, yeah. anyway, thanks so much for coming on, Adam. Do you have anything you want to talk about or promote before we sign off here? Oh, it was my pleasure to come on. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I have a channel. It's called Adam Something. If you like my stuff, there's my Patreon able to check it out. I post pictures of my cats there and that would be all for me, really. All right. Thanks so much for coming, Adam. Bye, buddy.
That's all we have today for the Urbanist Agenda. But if you just can't wait to hear the next episode, I recommend you sign up to Nebula because every episode is uploaded there first. You can sign up at nebula.tv agenda and doing so also supports this podcast. Nebula also gives you access to all of the other creators who are on there, which is now over 150 at this point. You'll find videos and podcasts and classes, but there are also Nebula Originals, which are high-budget productions by content creators you may already know on a whole wide range of educational subjects. If you sign up with our link, that's nebula.tv agenda, then you'll get a discount off a yearly membership. That's $20 off, bringing it down to $30 per year, which is honestly a hell of a deal for what you're getting. Thanks again for listening to The Urbanist Agenda, and maybe next time you'll be listening on Nebula, and then you won't even hear this part.